Hey everybody, thanks for stopping by. I'm Eric Johnson and this is the Burley Flow Podcast. Every week I tell stories from the banks of the Mississippi River here in Burley Flow, Wisconsin, the small town I returned to after 20 years away. If you like what you hear, and I hope you do, please subscribe to the podcast and check out the website at burleyflow.com where you'll find a bunch more content, including links to social media, excerpts from my book, and information about even more content on my Patreon site. Oh, and before I forget, thanks for being here. I don't know about you, but whenever I move, I have a sense of liberation. It just takes me a while to realize it, because looming so much larger is a conviction never to do it again. Because moving is just the worst, in every way. And there's seldom a glorious endpoint. It's not a finish line kind of race. There's no tape to break, no personal best to beat. At best, you arrive at your new place with aches and pains that aren't too debilitating. You've got everything you plan to have, and the condition of the place you left behind isn't too shameful. That's about the best you can hope for. That's victory. But you know what it's not? It's not the end. It's really just the beginning. It's kind of like that first Lord of the Rings movie. You've had a journey. You've established what you're leaving behind. You've got some bumps and bruises and some stories worth telling, and you've missed any number of elevensies, but the truly epic stuff is ahead of you, like six hours worth, and that's not even the director's cut. The thing is, you never really finish moving. One day you just sort of give up on packing and start living. It might be among mountains of boxes you no longer see, it might be with kitchen drawers that don't make sense. But at some point, you'll rationalize that you didn't go to all that work to get there, not to be there. And while that's probably a complete misreading of Eastern philosophy, at some point, you'll grab at anything that floats. And living in the moment is surprisingly buoyant when you're treading water in a sea of despair. Though adults give lip service to the notion of a fresh start, I think kids are the only ones who truly embrace it. Kids are always looking for mileposts, after all. And there's no bigger milepost than a move. It's kind of like the birth of Christ. There's before move and after, and kids aren't jaded enough to realize it's all BM. I had a couple of moves as a really little kid, but the first one that really mattered came between third and fourth grade. All I really knew about it was Dad was changing jobs, and this new job was in a city that was part of Chicago. I didn't really get how a city could be part of another city, but I didn't worry about it too much. What I did worry about was whether or not I'd still be able to watch Batman. Mom, who wasn't necessarily a master negotiator, but was an elementary school teacher, assured me that Chicago was a much, much bigger place than we were currently in, and as such, would have significantly better television watching. Which, of course, sealed the deal for me. Batman and more stuff? Better stuff? <laughs> Sign me up. Note she never actually said anything about Batman. Parents are cagey like that. Life forces them to be. 
when everybody else is just out there living, they're all about compromise. Not compromise in terms of coming to an equitable agreement, but compromise in terms of taking the option that best postpones the inevitable. In other words, real-world compromise. If Batman didn't happen to be a part of the Windy City's daytime TV lineup, she'd cross that bridge when she came to it. I crossed a lot of similar bridges on my way back to Burley Flow, but it's different when you're compromising with yourself. You don't really need to keep Mom's fancy table in it, you know. You don't even have a table big enough to put them on, you tell yourself. But look, they've been dry cleaned, you answer back. I mean, so is your blazer, but you're never going to use that either, you say. Compromise in this case involves a storage unit, or more specifically in my case, two. Two that are now almost a thousand miles away and contain things like table linens and curtain rods and fancy-shaped wine bottles I didn't have the heart to throw away. You know, the stuff you can't live without. Knowing what I know about storage units, if I had any money to invest, that's where I'd sink it. But obviously I don't have any money to invest because, you guessed it, all that money is going towards storage units of my own. I'm not kidding when I say the only thing standing between me and a retirement fund is compromise. You might even say the whole move was a compromise, but if you did, you'd be in a minority. Most just said it was stupid. So let me get this straight, my co-worker Tom said when I told him about my plan to move north. Tom is one of those guys who needs to get things straight before he can process information, and he looked as though the thing I'd given him to get straight was about to give him a hernia. You're leaving a job you like, with people you like, at a place you like, to do what? Go back to paying for gas with quarters? It's true. Before the job I was walking away from, I would occasionally need to pay for gas with whatever quarters I could manage to scrounge from seat cushions or cup holders or jacket pockets. There's more to life than money, I lamely replied, at which point he just walked away. Because everyone knows when you get to the 28th, there's nothing more to life than money. There's no way you're doing this voluntarily, my friend Dina said. Blink twice if you're under duress. A true southerner, Dina, I assume, was talking about the winters and the fact that it had been over 20 years since I'd experienced one. Twenty years might not have been long enough to make me a Southerner, but surely it was long enough for me to forget what being a Midwesterner was all about. It's not all hot dishes and cheese curds, you know, she said. And she was right, of course. It was also about places like the Eye. Like the old Sanderley place, the rambling old farmhouse I'd rented when I first lived in Burley Flow, the Eye was a local landmark. It stood on the corner of Whitaker and Elm and was nearly engulfed by the towering old pine tree that had grown up beside it, which was probably a good thing. If the giving tree taught us that sacrifice was a form of love, the lesson in that old pine tree was that sometimes covering up could be the kindest way to address old age. To be clear, the whole house wasn't called the eye, just the upstairs apartment. That was called the eye because, to most, the house looked like a face with one eye. The open eye was the upstairs kitchen window. The second eye, which would have been the living room window, had been shuttered at some point, making it appear closed. 
Further adding to the illusion was the air conditioner, a little window unit that looked like a cartoon pupil, especially at night when the kitchen light was on. The house, the whole face including the eye, was owned by Cordelia Trim, widowed sister of A.B. Seaton, who owned the big chain factory in Dubuque and was, along with Chester Bragg, the owner of the trailer hitch factory, one of the town's major benefactors. Where Seaton and Bragg spent their money bequeathing parks and libraries to the town, each name to remind you who was responsible, Cordelia Trim bought property. Lots of property. In fact, nearly every rental check in town was made out to Cordelia Trim. And if anyone had been interested in any of the vacant storefronts downtown, those checks would have been made out to her as well. While she was notorious for getting the most out of her properties, turning a big old house on Whitaker into three or maybe four little studio apartments, a process that had come to be called getting trimmed, in this case, mysteriously, she only ever rented the eye, not the rest of the face. In spite of the for rent sign in the yard, she never once showed the downstairs, and after a while I realized the sign was really for the eye, as if it were assumed I'd be a short-timer. Ask not for whom the eye blinks, I was told at the bilge pump. It blinks a lot, leaving me, of course, to wonder why. Two nights later, I heard the scratching. Like most noises in the middle of the night, it was tough to pinpoint. But laying there with my second guesses about the wisdom of this new start, the 2 a.m. naggings that run roughshod over even the most confident decisions, I given the whole refusal to rent the downstairs thing a lot of thought, eager for the distraction. And I'd come up with quite a few Poe-like scenarios that had been vaguely entertaining until the scratching. I vowed to be tough, though. I hadn't busted my butt to get there only to be run off by a little scratching and a whole lot of doubts. Sitting up in bed, turning my head from one side to the other to better hear the noise, I told myself that here I made my stand. Here I put on my big boy pants and became a man. I'd made a similar vow that summer I moved to Chicago. That move, which had begun with such promise, ended in disappointment. My model airplanes, which had been carefully placed in a box and then stuffed in the back window of our old green Pontiac, arrived warped from the sun, and Batman was nowhere to be found on the Chicago land dial. But in spite of that, or maybe because of it, I was a weird little kid who valued suffering and loss, I chose to view the move as the beginning of a new chapter, a chance to turn the page and become a new, more mature Eric. From that point on, if I got thirsty in the middle of the night, I'd get the drink myself. If I got a leg ache, I'd just deal with it instead of calling for mom. Those little kid days were over. It was hard, lonely work, but I made good on that vow. And in spite of the rough start, there were a few perks to this new life. I had an entire apartment complex as a playground, complete with a swimming pool, a pond, and an air-conditioned rental office with a pool table, We'd driven to Chicago, and wow, that was cool. And if the place didn't have Batman on TV, well, it had Mystery Theater on the radio, which seemed to me a perfect next rung up the grown-up ladder. Usually the scariest part of the show was the intro. The squeaking door, the bass clarinet, E.G. Marshall welcoming you to another adventure in the macabre. 
I didn't know what that meant, but it sure as heck wasn't for kids. Nothing for kids started at 10.30 at night, at least not for this kid. But because it was summer, I was allowed to listen. Tucked in with my clock radio turned to the proper station, WBBM News Radio 78, I felt like I was about as close as I could get to the autonomous adult I would eventually become. Admittedly, the future me probably wouldn't have Charlie Brown sheets or a frame poster of a 747 cockpit above his head, but the rest of it, a guy making his own decisions, choosing his own entertainment, staying up past 11, that I had covered. Until Dracula. I should say that the radio adaptation wasn't really all that scary, at least the part of it I heard. There was a lot of building suspense, however, so I was wound pretty tight there in my little twin bed, wrapped up in my Charlie Brown sheets, when that frame poster of the 747 cockpit decided to fall off its nail. As fate would have it, and it's hard not to think that fate doesn't know exactly what it's doing, it fell right as one of the characters realized Count Dracula had no reflection, a plot point that didn't really need help to get my heart racing. But it got it all right. It got it in spades. Because that poster didn't just fall, it slid. And I swear it did it in slow motion. 24 by 36 inches of scraping on the wall behind me, right behind me. And somehow... To add insult to injury, that poster was thin enough to squeeze behind my mountain of pillows and slide all the way to the floor. So when I turned around, there was nothing there. Just like Dracula in the mirror. It would have been so much easier if I just screamed, but to my shame I didn't. Not immediately. Sprinting out ahead of that reaction was the realization that this was the real test. Glasses of water, leg aches... That was kid stuff compared to this. So when I did call out for Mom, broke my vow and regressed to that frightened little child I used to be, it was a choice, a decision. And while reactions can be excused, decisions you have to live with. Occasionally, though, if you live long enough, you have the chance to make those decisions again. At least that's how it felt as I sat there in bed listening for that otherworldly scratching, my heart racing again at the unknown. And while maybe following through with the decision to be strong comes a little easier when you know mom's no longer around to come running, I like to think it's because somewhere along the way I actually became the adult I played at being. Because this time, instead of buckling under, I rolled over and went to sleep. And the scratching? <laughs> Turns out it was only Rufus, the squirrel who lived in the rotted bed underneath the kitchen window. Cordelia Trim may have invested in property, but she didn't spend a penny on upkeep, which was good for the Rufuses in town, and not all that bad for second chances either. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks again for stopping by, and when you get the chance, don't forget to check out the website at burlyflow.com. There's some cool stuff there that I think you'll like. <laughs> Thanks again. We'll catch you later. <laughs>